0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Ireland Creates, the podcast all about storytelling and storytellers here on the Emerald Isle. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke, and I hope this episode of season two of Ireland Creates finds you safe and well. If you're new here, welcome. And I hope you enjoy and stick around. Please do feel free to check out our back catalogue. And of course, if you are a returning listener, well, thank you for your continued support. And thank you all for your kind messages of support on the relaunch of season two of Ireland Creates. Well, I've got a bit of an unusual guest for you on this week's episode. And at first listen, you might think, hold on, Why is this guy on a storytelling podcast? But I think you'll agree by the end of the episode that this person really does know how to tell a good story.
1: Uh, Declan Power, Security and Defence Analyst.
0: Declan Power, you are very welcome to Season 2 of Ireland Creates. Thank you very much for taking time out to have a chat with us about, well, your life and career.
1: Thank you very much, Ashley. It's nice to be here and uh, with your listeners as well,
0: Declan. I think it's fair to say that you are a voice that many Irish people will be familiar um, with, at least, or at least from hearing on radio. I think, in particular, in Ireland. And I know that some listeners might be aware of your background and uh, where you're from and all of that. But let's let's go back to the start. You grew up in, in County Westmeath. Um, a military county or a county with military barracks, at least, and a bit of a military lifestyle. Um, What was it like for you growing up? Was it assumed that you would go into that sort of a a working career? Was it something that was always on, on the cards for you?
1: Well, I think, yeah, I always considered it on the cards for me, but it wasn't necessarily assumed because I came from a Military family, but you're right, you know, Westmead and Mullingar, in particular, Mullingar and Thlone are two very stalwart garrison towns, so you're surrounded by military culture and uh, military personnel, at least I was anyway when I was growing up. And so it whets your appetite, uh, it gives you a little bit of a, a taste. And if you have a, you know, a, a further interest in your, your reading and you're into history and things like that, uh, there, there was a lot of things in Mullingar, in particular, there's a very um, uh, very active archaeological society, there was uh, a lot of engagement between the local garrison and the townspeople. So between sport and cultural activities, you were well aware, of, not just of the barracks, but of the units that had been there and things of that nature. So from a young age, I had uh, realised I wanted to be in the army. Now, having said that, I now realise I had a lot of particular interests that I summed up as being uh, serviced by a career in the military. Um, looking back on it, and I think you know, compared to the experiences of other countries as well, there are lots of ways you can achieve that. You, the mil- and, and indeed, if you go into the military, a lot of people realise that is a great source, uh, uh, an outlet uh, to pursue certain things and develop certain strengths and skills and competencies. But you don't have to stay in that institution forever and ever, that there are lots of other ways to, uh, to expand in those competencies and interests
0: growing up I grew up in Tullamore so like the only time I ever saw anybody in any kind of military uniform was when I was because I was into horses I was at the RDS at the show jumping fairs um, and you'd see like the various members of the Defence Forces participating for the Irish team at the Aga Khan um, wow. and you know I thought for I was convinced at one point in my life I was going to go into the military because I wanted to do the equestrian side of things. Now, in my case, I wasn't allowed to join because I'm diabetic and that just ruled me out straight away. But it was something and I wonder, um, like Michelle Obama, I think it was that said it, like if you can't if you can't see it, you can't be it. Does it make it, do you think, in an area or a county or a town where you regularly would see Army uniforms and soldiers maybe doing drills in, in in the local barracks. Does it make it a more um, a more possible a more like like an actual option as opposed to an area where you never hear or see the military?
1: Absolutely, yeah, I completely agree with what you said and indeed what Michelle Obama says. Uh, you you know you can see as most young boys in particular would do you know military representations in films on TV, mm-hmm. uh, and that is uh, at a certain age quite influential. Um, but seeing real-life people that you know, you know their families, uh, and you couple that with their uh, the kind of their representation as professional soldiers of whatever rank is is very is very influential. Because again, as a as a young boy, you're at an impressionable age, and if there's you know if there's a man living down the road from you who's a, you know a, a, an army officer, an army sergeant, and invariably those kinds of people carry themselves a certain way. They're probably involved in local sporting clubs, so you're you're seeing them not just in uniform and they they become sort of iconic figures i think to uh, to people around them that have an interest in the military so there would be you know there, there's a, a n- probably a number of people who ended up deciding to pursue a military career because of the influence of people in their lives like that and that comes from living in proximity to to the military it's not exclusive there's lots of other people yeah. who choose a military career who might have, have hardly met somebody in the forces until they were an adult but uh, it certainly does help and it certainly does give you a more rounded appreciation of the uh, the military way of life
0: so you had this idea in the back of your mind and like you see you're as you say you see people that you know in uniform and maybe you might even see them at, at work but then the reality of actually joining the defense forces how did you find
1: it well, again, for me, one of the things, and uh, I suppose uh, living in proximity, uh, uh, it's not ex- exclusive. I mean, somebody in Tullamore could do this as well. But joining the reserves, or as it was called then, the FCA, you know, the the part-time portion mm-hmm. of the Defence Forces, which uh, is not the same as life in the regular army, but it's it. There are similar aspects. It's a taster. It's a good entree. And again, it kind of diffuses aspects of it. It encultures you. You. Uh, You learn a little bit about what it's like to wear a uniform, to handle a weapon, to uh, be under military discipline without it being all pervasive. Uh, Now, even people who do that when they do go into the regular army can get a bit of a culture shock because it is, you know, so all consuming 24 hours a day when you're in the training phase. But for the most part, um, having been in the, the then as it was FCA, it breaks the ice. Uh, certainly. Now, there are others who would say that going straight in to whatever, at whatever level you get in at without that is good too, because you've no expectations. Uh, and I would have known some people who, particularly at uh, the cadet level, when they went into the training system, just it was like cold turkey. And they so they had no expectations. They knew it was going to be tough and they just get on with it. But, you know, in general, I would say the FCA was always a great feeding system for people into the regular army because it gave people an insight into the family aspect of the Defence Forces and the sense of kind of team family uh, that existed and became a very attractive thing in its own right for people who might not have thought of a career in the forces otherwise.
0: So talk to me about the kind of work then that that you took part in.
1: Well, I did a a sort of an eclectic military career. A lot of people, depending on which there's two, well, there used to be three key methods of entry into the defense forces. So enlisted entry, which is the most common entry, going in as a recruit uh, and training to be a soldier, basic training to be a soldier, and then serving in one of the mainstream uh, arms such as the infantry uh, or the artillery or cavalry, you know, the, the combat arms, or some of the other uh, supply and transport, as it used to be called then, which was to do with logistics. And a lot of people, that's the their, their, their way they, their, their career unfolds to them, and they climb the non-commissioned officer ranks, you know, corporal and various sergeant grades. And they would largely, in Ireland, the traditional thing was if you joined up in a certain unit in a certain barracks, which most people tried to pick the one that was nearest to where the, the locality they lived in, you stayed within that unit. Uh, even though you might be detached to different places for uh for training or to conduct training or for overseas service, so if you joined up in athlone, you invariably stayed in a unit in athlone okay um, that's not the case now as much and certainly then if you go in if you went in at an apprentice level, which was to train as a technician for either the army or the Air Corps or later the naval service uh you moved around a lot because there were only so many of those technical specialists and then definitely at at commissioned at officer level, which you usually went in through uh, cadet school for that, uh, again, for your career, you had to move around. So I went in as an enlisted man, as an infantry private in Galway. And I moved then to Mullingar, which was my hometown, to become an artillery specialist, which is a heavy weapons specialist. And uh, I had already been in the reserve unit uh, that was there. So I had a, a, a modicum of knowledge of that and had been a, non, a you know, junior non-commissioned officer uh, at that level.
0: Declan, you decided then you got the opportunity to go to military college. What exactly did that involve?
1: Well, that's essentially where you go to learn how to be uh, a leader and junior officer. And um, the, the whole thing is quite abrasive. Um, it certainly was then anyway. Maybe, maybe too much so. Um, and I think there's a bit of a rethink about that now. I mean, there's, the army is, uh, needs to be a place that prepares you for the rough and tumble of life in general and military life and active service. But sometimes uh, they, they, you can do that and physically and mentally prepare people. But there are aspects to it, and I think some of this has come to the fore with the documentary uh, by Katie Hannon called mm-hmm. Women of yeah. Honour. Uh, and that's, you know, some of what those women experience isn't, isn't just peculiar to women. Um, uh, people have often said to me uh, where they've experienced the, the harder age of military life that it's not the physical roaring and shouting. Uh, that that's You get into a zone and you can deal with that. It's more insidious stuff where maybe somebody takes a dislike to you and they actively undermine you uh, when you're in a training situation. Uh, and that's very easy to do. And I think some people do it uh, unintentionally. They don't realise they're doing it. And that it comes back down to the quality of training of uh, superior officers and instructors and things of that nature. That if you're not self-aware to begin with, you can end up doing damaging things and I think that may have been behind what led to some of the damaging things that are spoken about by the women in that documentary and I, I'm talking about the thin end of the wedge, I'm not trying to uh, you know, gloss over the assaults and, and, and variations that they would have experienced uh, or some of them experienced. Uh, so when I was going through that, yeah, there was good and bad and as I was saying, um, the army is very much, uh, for me anyway and I think for a lot of people, it's a bit like a game of snakes and ladders and you can find yourself uh, as you go through it, landing at the bottom of a ladder. And you think, yeah, after you experience that, you think, well, the only way is up. But you, we've all got strengths and weaknesses. And while in most civilian occupations, you can play to your strengths because you find yourself in a line of work that suits you ideally and you, you build on that. But in, uh, in the military world, you, you cannot keep doing purely what you want all the time. Because if you want to climb the ladder rank-wise, if you want to expand your skills, you, and and oftentimes you would without your choice in it, you would be transferred into a, a a vacancy that the army needs you to do, regardless of whether you want to do it, and so uh, you have to wrestle with your uh, with your weaknesses at times, and uh, it's not pleasant when you go through that, but it definitely is uh, character building and defining, and I think if militaries can learn to. Uh, build on that and uh, systemize it, uh, it can be a good thing. But oftentimes militaries, uh, when they're doing that, it's not thought out and it, they can be quite bloody minded. And that's when I think damage can be done mm-hmm. because it can be quite arbitrary, if that makes sense.
0: So like the Irish military, I suppose, is one of the, well, it's not, I'm not going to say unique because I know there, there, there are similar setups elsewhere, but like the idea of being a neutral military and going abroad as a member of a peacekeeping force as a, uh, as opposed to going to war. What is that experience like uh, being in that kind of a potentially awkward, to put it, politely, position?
1: Well, yeah, you, you raise some interesting points. I think a lot of people out there don't understand. Um, Ireland talks about neutrality, but I think we're the only ones who, who uh, you know, internally, who kind of take that sort of seriously, because you know, we're not, we're not fully paid up members of NATO, but we are certainly uh, in the last decade or more, uh, we're in the Partnership for Peace. We are we have a, a trusted member arrangement w- uh, which gives us access to certain levels of operational intelligence, which is a crucial thing for our troops serving overseas. So w- while we mightn't be fully signed up, uh, full members of a military alliance, we are in a number of partnership arrangements which has been great because during my time in the early days in the military we were somewhat isolated and you know you're and it, it confined us in the kinds of missions we took on uh, we did lebanon for well over 20 years which was a great learning curve for the army but it was a very static mission and in the period when i went into the army and by the time i was leaving the regular army you know, the active service end of it We had moved on to be able to go on NATO-led missions, EU-led missions, as well as UN-led missions. The one requirement was that it have a UN mandate, whatever the mission was. So the UN themselves had realised the benefits of sort of subcontracting complex peace enforcement missions. And so again, that was another change during my period in the Defence Forces where peacekeeping was something that had evolved during the Cold War. Peacekeeping was meant to involve enforcement, but during the Cold War, because of the standoff between East and West, UN forces were only deployed as kind of to do light police actions. By the end of the 90s, in fact, from the early 90s, UN doctrine shifted with the end of the Cold War to take on much more harder edged combat related missions that were peace enforcement, chapter seven missions. And they, you know, that could involve outright combat. It could involve what a, a Marine general in the US described as the three-block war, whereby uh, a force commander could have one portion of his troops engaged in humanitarian support activities, uh, in, in all in the same location, in the same city, shall we say. Another portion of his troops engaged in uh, peacekeeping and detente activities, and another portion of his force engaged in full-on combat operations, uh, all within... Uh, the environments of the one city. And that, that, I suppose, to come back to the thing about you know, the Irish Defence Forces, one of the things that I would say, we're not entirely unique, but one of the things that is a badge of identity for us, particularly abroad, is our adaptability. Because we're small, because we're professional, uh, so you know, most of the people in it are going to be in it for a number of years at the very least, not just for uh, a year like some of our Scandinavian or other European colleagues. So it means we have this uh, accumulation of knowledge and a a sort of an expectation that we will always have to try and make do. We'll never have enough. We'll never have exactly the right amount of equipment. And it it spawns a certain mentality that is highly sought after, uh, even if we don't have all of the uh, equipment. And that has been i think a huge benefit to uh, various missions irish soldiers have served on and has been a huge benefit to the defense forces and to the state as those personnel uh, either decide to stay in the forces or rotate and circulate back into civilian life that adaptability make do and get on with it kind of uh, approach
0: in your own experience in it um, what parts of the world did it bring you to
1: uh, well yeah i was in uh, the Middle East, in in Lebanon, uh, in uh, inside uh, part of Syria uh, before it was uh, the, the roughhouse that it is now, and uh, I was in uh, West Africa, and uh, Central Africa, and uh, the Sudan, both Sudans as they are now. And I should I should perhaps preface that with saying uh, I'm, what I'm including there is a mixture of my time in the regular army. And then when I left uh, active service after you know, my time there, I found it's, <laughs> it's a bit like the Mafia in a sense, you know, once in, never out. I got asked back to do a couple of different things to teach uh, and to uh, instruct on some things down in the peacekeeping school in the Korra and from time to time to lecture in the, in the military college on certain areas that I developed particular expertise in. And I went on to a panel that was overseen between the Army and the Department of Foreign Affairs for uh, civil military advice and coordination on peacekeeping missions, which was quite interesting work. Uh, it was different to being uh, in the regular Army as such. And I suppose my uh, experience, you know, in headquarters, it prepared me a little bit for that because as I um, was uh, touching on earlier, I got the opportunity after a period in the military college to go to university, to Dublin City University and take a degree in journalism, uh, which, uh, you know, I was employing those skills then in in roles in Defence Force headquarters. And so I was out of regimental soldiering. Now you miss kind of camaraderie, but you, uh, that's one of the things in that, but you also get to have far more latitude. Uh, I was dealing with people much higher up the ladder than myself. And uh, I was given roles that involved briefing and advisory uh, roles in certain areas way beyond my pay grade. And so that boosted my, conf- my confidence and competence. And it was a very different career experience to most of my peers. So why
0: was it that you decided like when, OK, I'm guessing that you were given the opportunity to look, if you're, look, if you're interested, we could support you if you wanted to go to university. Where did the journalism come from?
1: Well, you see, the, there was a, a new uh, set of circumstances had come into the army following the Gleason Commission, a special study on needs of the defence forces. And at the time, what was known as the Directorate of Intelligence and in Headquarters was being, uh, being changed uh, and it was coming under the Directorate of Operations and then other elements of it uh, were coming directly under the Chief of Staff's branch, which included media relations and the press office and, uh, and other elements of that. So in that. Uh, shake-up, I found myself uh, attached to the media relations side of it. And uh, the opportunity came up to uh, to, to study uh, for that degree. Uh, I wasn't the only, well, actually I was, I think I was the only one who ended up with a degree in journalism at that time, but there were others since that. Uh, there was a greater awakening in the army for the need to get people uh, w- well-educated and well-qualified uh, where areas presented themselves, not just you know it, it included areas to do with human resource management, it included areas to do with uh, forensic science i mean areas that you wouldn 't always associate with the army, but the best way I would describe it is an army is like uh, any other community you have all kinds of specialists in it you've all kinds of requirement for specialists, and an army has to be completely self sufficient ideally, so that you know if you 're deploying in the field that you don 't have to uh, goal, you, you you don't really, it doesn't really work if you to take civilians and co-opt them in unless they've gone through some sort of training. So uh, I just happened, to, I think, to be in the right place at the right time when the army was modernising in that regard. Um, Had and, you been
0: yeah. writing up until that point or storytelling in any kind of way?
1: No, um, not at all. Although I found Again, it was a little bit like landing at the bottom of of a ladder or a snake's head. Sometimes you don't realise you're at the bottom of a ladder or a snake's head until you're there. Sometimes you think you're at the bottom of a a ladder and it turns out to be a snake's head. In other words, what I'm saying in plain English is sometimes you you look to do something and you get there and you think you're going to be great at it and it doesn't work out. And then you get shunted to an area that you think won't suit you at all or you're not interested in. And you find actually I have a bit of a flair for this. So I found out, yo, know, uh, well, you know, the, my attraction to the army init- uh, initially was about being physically and mentally challenged and very much wanted to be in the thick of it uh, and, you know, be, expose myself to risk and to want to kind of lead. Uh, that's that's all very well. But mind you, th- there's large chunks of time where you could be in units that are trained for that, but you don't get to do very much. So being in, a headqu- in headquarters seemed to me like being, you know, strapped to a desk and boring. Mm. But when I got there, I found that there was much more need for creative thinking. And the army was going through a, 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 how would I call it, a phase of reinvention. And the the thing was, I found I had a bit of a flair for Uh, putting things together for a briefing, uh, for articulating myself, for drafting reports. So it wasn't journalism per se, uh, but there there were what we would now call transferable skills. And then when the opportunity for getting to university started to appear on the horizon, I was looking at a few different options uh, that were all kind of interrelated. And the thing was, uh, to make it work, it had to have skills related, you know, that were going to be of benefit in some shape or form to my then role in the army. And that was the nearest one that came up. Uh, if I was doing it again, I might have opted to do what is now the BA in international relations at yeah. CU. But uh, I have to say I have no regrets, though, in that regard. I mean, the journalism degree was a great opportunity. Initially, I was kind of concerned. I didn't have an undergraduate degree at the time. So it's a, it was a four year program. And I tried to talk my way onto the communications degree, which was a three year program. Um, And uh, nearly did, but it didn't quite work out. But I'm glad it didn't. The journalism degree was more rounded. There was a language in it. There was intra-placement that was part of it. So while still in the army, I got to uh, work for a period for the Sunday Business Post. Now, the college had very good uh, relationship with the Defence Forces with quite a number of people studying in DCU, and they gave me the option of going back to the press office. Um, But I, I was already working there in between uh college uh in between lectures so to speak so my boss at the time said no get more rounded experience and they they were quite happy for me to you know get to understand the rhythm of working in a, a national level uh, media entity and i got the chance to um do an exchange scheme and study down in australia uh for a period which was great amazing mm-hmm. and um it, it was just a number of things came together at the right time.
0: It sounds like at the time that in your the, the managers ahead of you had good foresight, that there was a recognition that actually having somebody with a bit of media, media training here could be of great use for us. And I say that because I've spent so long in newsrooms, it, predominantly in radio stations, where up until very, very recently, from the... Gardaí, which obviously I know is not military, but it's the other security type force that we have in the country. And um, the answer always was, oh, no, the, 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 the joke in a newsroom would be the media training and the The college is no comment. <laughs> um, and that is, I'm sure, is unfair. But, um, it, you know, it's the perception at least. But it seems like at the time, the military might have been ahead of its time.
1: Uh, yes and no. Uh, I think your overall assessment isn't too far off the mark. I think that there were definitely people that I encountered uh, at higher level who uh, were innovative thinkers and uh, and were keen to support and mentor their subordinates and get the best out of them and get the best out of them for uh, for the military. Um, but mind you, there were, there were others that were less so as well. And it's uh, largely about uh, just finding the right mentor, the right rabbi at the right time, to use a colloquial phrase, uh, borrowed from the NYPD, where they talk about a senior officer who kind of is uh, helpful and guides your career. Uh, So there were one or two of those that uh, I worked with uh, closely. Uh, Ono Nocton was one guy in particular who was, uh, you know, he had come to the press office uh, around the time I was starting to study, and then he ended up as the senior officer there, and uh, we got on very well. And he gave me, you know, lots of opportunities. But there were, it wasn't just a case of him giving me opportunities. He expected me to deliver because it was, he was quite pragmatic. He could see – he, he would say straightforwardly to me, like, well, I want you to do that because you, you're better at that. I, I, I wouldn't be able to do that in the same way. And that was a bit revelatory to have a senior officer say that to you, you know, to be so candid about it. And that was what I liked about that whole period was I was working with people. Who were keen to get the job done and who didn't stand in ceremony or didn't get, uh, you know, absorbed by their their rank or status, and that they weren't insecure about themselves. Uh, and that, that I have to say that experience isn't what everybody would have had in the army, um, and it all was depending on where you were. But that period and Owen wasn't the only one I encountered. Also, Colum Doyle, uh, who was uh, some people would. Uh, some of your, your listeners will, will remember the name. He had spent a long time out in Bosnia on secondment from the Defence Forces, uh, working for the European Union, brokering ceasefires at the worst of times there, doing you know, amazing things under horrendous circumstances. And when he came back to the Defence Forces, senior officers were, well, frankly, a lot of them were jealous of him because he got so much international media attention and was considered an expert in what he was doing by the international community. Uh, he was you know, second only within the EU lineup to the Lord Carrington, who was the special EU special envoy to uh, the region. And when he came back to the defence forces, he was kind of put back in his box. <clears throat> and they say that you know he would have he retired as a full colonel, but he would have probably made general had he not been for the enmity he experienced. So that was a, an eye opener to me as well. Um, seeing a guy with his track record and abilities being nearly nearly sidelined, he had to kind of fight his way back into the game when he came back. So there was a lots of there were lots of interesting learning curves during that period um, that I just wouldn't have seen anywhere else uh, or anywhere else in the army for that matter.
0: So talk to me then um, about the transition from military life. Like, I suppose for those of us and I know I'm generalising here, but for those of us who were not raised in a military family, have no experience of what military life is, Mm -hmm. it seems to us to be an awful lot of following orders. is the transition from military life into a civilian life, regardless of whatever job it is that you're going to, uh, you know, how did you manage that?
1: Well, I think maybe what helped was I was never very good at following orders to begin with. And, and strangely enough, <laughs> you will find in every army on the planet, uh, there is a, a, a coterie of people who end up in it and who oftentimes, uh, like I did, love their time in it, who were never very good at following orders uh, and who were kind of creative in how they did things. And the armies. Uh, from the outside look very regimented, but from the inside you have all kinds of different people. And those people are, are often required, particularly in active service situations, because of that uh, sort of erratic, imaginative, uh, can-do type of attitude that is required. Um, so with that, there's also the caveat that you, those kinds of people don't often stay in the military forever. And I kind of began to learn and cop cup, cup on to this when I was uh, working in headquarters, because I was dealing with so many different people across the board and indeed so many different agencies, like you mentioned on Garda Siakana uh, and uh, themselves, a number of other agencies. So my, bro- my horizons were much broader. So it was easier for me than maybe a lot of my peers to consider uh, moving on. And then I, I had a boss who used to say to me, you should really be considering a career outside of the Defence Forces. And he said, you know, as soon as I get to whatever it was, he was magic period, he was going to leave as well. And I suppose that combined with a number of other things and the improvement in the economy uh, at the time, yeah, I decided, uh, and indeed I had a, an Australian girlfriend at the time, uh, It just all of those things came together and I decided I was going to go move on. I had good connections with the media, having obviously done, completed the degree that I completed, but from the work I was doing. And so I finished up and went freelancing. And that was an interest. That was completely erratic with no security of tenure. And yeah, that's,
0: that's a baptism of fire.
1: Yeah, it is. And I'll tell you why it's a baptism of fire. Uh, certainly back then, and I don't think it's changed now, and I often say it to students that I teach, you know, it's not about what you can do in, the, in that scenario, in, in, particularly in the media and freelancing, or your, your capabilities or your contacts from the point of view of, of generating stories. It's about your network within the media as well. And I don't think we oftentimes stress that enough, uh, or that that point is stressed so i had I had a reasonable network, but um it wasn't as good as I thought it was, so what i what would happen is I was well able to work and generate stories uh and make a living out of it, but it didn't mean that I was climbing the ladder in the way that uh, I expected to to get a more regular job and security of tenure um so yeah, I kind of you know would have broken some stories that were of national level based on my own resources. You learn it, you develop your trade craft very quickly. The kind of <coughs> experiences I had, sorry. I'm not
0: yeah. going to let you brush over that one. So talk to us, give us an example of those stories that you would have broken.
1: Um, well, two, two that come to mind because they were quite controversial. One was uh, the, um, there was a chap who gunned down his, uh, his then girlfriend and her mother in a, car park outside a hospital in Donegal, uh, Gallagher I think was the guy's name, it's funny that I, I, can't, I can barely see his face now and there was a time when I ate, drank and slept him and I was working in tabloids you know, for, uh, uh, at the time, uh, mainly in the Sunday world and then had started to get more regular work with a view to a staff job in the mirror and they kind of gave me free reign to go after these stories and I got a bit of a lead on this guy because he, he had been locked up and he had absconded from uh, The central mental hospital in Dundrum, the place where uh, the 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 criminally insane are supposed to be kept, Mm. and uh, I managed to trace him to uh, an address in Birmingham, and he had uh, he had concocted a whole plan. He didn't just uh, run off uh, on a whim. Uh, He had he had developed a relationship with a woman, and uh, she had gone ahead of him, and they'd gotten a house, and he and they actually had uh, started a family. They had twin daughters at the time which nobody was aware of but it was just the fact that i remember uh, you know the driving force for me was uh, to, to track the guy down because uh, he was and then the more i learned about uh, where he was and what he was doing that he was having this whole life and he deprived two other people of lives yeah he was never convicted of murder because he was judged to be insane at the time judged to be temporarily insane but uh, nailing him down and kind of uh, turning him over as they used to say in the tabloid trade uh, it was very satisfying. And there were other variations on that. I remember uh, a story about prisoners who were uh, all convicted of murder, I think, being let out uh, to attend, you know, after a period to attend uh reskilling and, and school and things like that. And I actually, I was probably at that point starting to think, well, there needs, you know, it was great fun within the tabloid world going and getting stories and turning things over. But there was never a great opportunity for analysis and depth. And I was getting to a point where, you know, I wanted to kind of get my teeth into other things. And then um, the Tom Clonan story, the uh, uh, one about the abuse of women in the Defence Force. I knew Tom I used to sit across the desk from the Defence headquarters and we used to talk about his thesis. And I was asked to write uh, up or to, to, to nail down a story about uh, an alleged rape on an FCA camp in the, in the Glen of Amal. And I asked. Uh, I started a conversation with Tom about uh, his thoughts and that, because I wanted to bring greater perspective, rather than just mm. to write a titillating, salacious story. And Tom wasn't long out of the army himself. He was teaching in Tala. and that led to me writing a piece for then the Sunday Independent, which kicked off. After the Sunday Independent ran, at the Irish Times t- took it up, and then Tom became Tom Cloner. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, Having said that, though, there, there, you know, there, there are two particular ones that just came to mind, like, and I, and I think two reasonably important stories at different ends of the spectrum. But that experience had an effect on me and that I was starting to question, well, where was I going? I was kicking around a lot in the media. I was doing some good work, <clears throat> but I, I felt I was treading water too. And... It was great fun, and you know yourself from the media. There's a great social life. The the whole ligging scene can be great, but you get to. And I, I was you know a little bit older than the average when I started into it. I was in my thirties now at this stage, and I was saying to myself, "Well, you know, how long will I keep doing this? Or where you know what are my, uh, what are my options here?" And I wasn't seeing the doors open up to kind of staff jobs with the, and, and and climbing the editorial ladder. Uh, although I was starting to figure out what I needed to do to make that happen. You know, there is a, You needed to be getting on the inside. You need to be working on a regular news desk in-house where you can start to develop the links. To It's, it's very much like the army. You have to find a mentor. You have to find somebody who uh, is not, not just enough to be good. You have to be considered to be good by people who matter. And you need to be seen to be good as well. Exactly. Exactly. Like you know, as justice, for justice to be done, it must be seen to be done. Mm-hmm. For a career to be built, you know, as you said. So, it was at that time. Then I remember then thinking, well, is that what I really want? Do because it's an intense career, the media. And if you if you decide you want to do that, uh, well, then you go at it hammer and tongs, and it's hundred percent all the way. And I thought, do you know what? Maybe I'll take a pace back here and reconsider. Because one of the things that had attracted me to a career in journalism was, uh, and you know, when I was leaving the defence forces, was I thought I can still do the things I'm. In. I'm still interested in conflict, in you know, in in war and the drivers of it, in the military way of life. And I thought you know, going into journalism might give me the opportunity to focus on that. But what I realised was in Ireland there is really you're not going to make a full career out of that. You'd need to go to England to work for one of the big. National uh, media outlets, uh, or, or work for a while, and get onto one of the big national media outlets. If you want to do that kind of thing as a full-time career, and maybe if I was five to ten years younger, I might have uh, done that because you do need to build up a track record. Instead, what happened was I kind of took a sideways turn, and I got yeah, I was ended up being asked by somebody I had served under, uh, was I interested in this new panel to do with civil-military coordination. Uh, secondment by the state for overseas missions that they were building this up and they were looking for people who might have the right mix of background and attribute and and I liked the idea of it, and uh, there were a few other courses I had to do, uh, various things that led me being deployed on again on u n missions, but this time in a very different role, where I was only uh, kind of peripherally in a sort of chain of command. I had to act on my own initiative a lot I was uh, uh, one of my first trips was uh, to a place called darfur uh, you know the, towards the end of the civil war there which is part of sudan but it 's very content- it 's an autonomous region that the tribes there didn 't recognize the rule of Khartoum and it 's right on the borders with chad and so um getting to you know broker ceasefires in IDP camps where trouble had broken out, uh, advising the civil elements of the UN how to uh, conduct their operations uh, safely in a secure fashion, advising the military within the UN how to deal with and manage civilian outlets and getting in as an interlocutor between the UN community and the indigenous armed forces of the Sudanese government, including their national security and military intelligence, who were complete laws unto themselves, was an absolute, you know, you know <laughs> I won't say dream because it was hard work, but it was, you know, it was you get on with it, do what you, you know, make it up yeah. as you went along. You it know,
0: sounds it was, like, you, as you said, like the, the work, okay, and a career in the media in Ireland is intense, but that sounds extreme.
1: Yeah, it was, and uh, and at the time then so, <laughs> uh, I, I, in between doing those things, I ended up uh, I was doing part time lecturing when I'd be back in Ireland. I used to find I would uh, interspose. because uh, unlike you know some people when they were doing that, that kind of work, they would be chasing after full time posts within the UN, and they would and it was very well paid work. Uh, and they would stay at it. But uh, I kind of found out, you know, when I would come home, I would enjoy it. You know, it's, it's the little things that for a period, you would uh, just relish not having to plan every move because when you're in a conflict zone, you're... You don't, you know, you have to think, well, I have to go from A to B. What's the, uh, what are the roads like? How are are there uh, kidnaps, a regular occurrence there? What's the threat level? Uh, So everything is thought about. So when you come back to Dublin to be able to walk down the streets and wander in and out of shops, decide when you want to eat, decide if you want to go for a pint, all of those things, you you savour them. And so, uh, and I quite enjoyed the part-time lecturing in different places. And it was, um, I was doing a bit in DCU. I think I was doing a bit in UCD. And some, somewhere along the way, somebody mentioned something about, uh, they were looking for somebody in ballet format. Now, I thought it was part-time role. And I remember going along to an interview and at the end of the interview, it, it coming up that this would be during the working, during the kind of normal office hours, if you like. And I remember saying, well, I don't know if that would suit me now in terms of whatever. Uh, and I, I was walking back into town from Ballsbridge and I get a phone call from the, the guy on the board who I didn't know at the time, but he was the deputy principal in Ballyfermot. And he said, look, he said, I want to give you the job. He said, um, and I said, I'm not so sure uh, it'd be a good fit. They said, I really like you know, the, the, the concept, of the subjects you're talking about and teaching them. But, uh, you know, I'm doing X, Y and Z. And he said, do you realise that this is a full-time job? This is, and I said, I thought it said, uh, you know, part-time. And he said pro rata in that it's not, it's a year-long contract. Yeah. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said it means a lot of things but it means you get paid during the summer <laughs> <laughs> and i remember thinking oh because I, you know, I in the other gigs i had been doing i remember signing a contract for a year and it said something about summer uh, you know holidays and thinking that but all that was was just you got an extra two weeks pay at the end of the contract and that was your kind of summer pay and i thought "Oh, this could be interesting because uh, i remember thinking this uh, that, that could be an ideal job that could be the kind of job that leaves you pay the bills in ireland and still gives you elbow room to to do other things, and uh, that's how I ended up then in uh, in Bali Firma. But I was now on this register as well, so it was a bit like being a retained fireman. I was in this permanent uh, post uh, in the college, and I was also liable for call up for these different missions overseas. And that's how it went for a number of years. And and you know what? It was grand. It was great fun. Uh, and I, I worked that way until a more particular position that was very intense came, uh, came up, and, well it required work before, during and after and I ended up taking a career break from the college okay. to do that and I was in South Sudan for a while.
0: So I could, now I could spend the entire podcast talking to you about what it's like to be on the ground as a member of, a, of the Irish military and the experience of that and I, and I think it's very hard for you to Um, to even give us an insight into what life is like, but in a nutshell, because I'm just conscious that time is against us. um, Like, what's the day-to-day life of being a member of the Irish military on a foreign mission?
1: Well, it it very much depends on what your key role is. So it can vary hugely. So I'll give you two examples. So for the ordinary soldier who enlists as a recruit and becomes a private soldier and maybe a corporal after a few years, uh, on a mission now, like maybe to the Golan Heights or to Lebanon or indeed to Chad when they were there. It's, it's high tempo now. They're, they would live in a camp with other soldiers just like uh, their, their colleagues in uh, the Brits or the American military or the French or whatever, but um, that's good because there's great camaraderie uh, the 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 life is is fairly intense and the accommodation even though it's tented uh, in the camps is quite good and the food is quite good and you're out on patrols a lot, your your physical fitness is tested because you're in a place like the Middle East and Africa and your welfare is looked after because the leadership is usually pretty good. And the high tempo of patrols and operations means that the six months tour of duty, or sometimes four months if it's uh, in a very intense place like uh, Liberia with the climate and where malaria was fairly high, uh, passes fairly fast. Whereas that wasn't always the case, and it could, uh, you know, in some missions uh, like Eritrea, things could drag a little bit. Then, if you move up the ladder, if you were at commissioned level uh, for a few years, so you're an officer maybe of captain rank or above, you get the opportunity to go on what are known as uh, MILOB or military observer missions, which are, means you're you and a small team of multinational officers. So, uh, from, you could be six to eight guys from all over the world. Um, working on a, a peace observance mission where your job is to uh, get into the heart of the conflict, patrol around maybe in two-man teams, uh, liaise with the the, the the various belligerents or maybe try if it's the end of the phase of war where there's a deal has been signed but there, there's the messy business of trying to separate the conflict elements and bring in rogue elements from the bush and get them disarmed. That's uh, That's really fascinating work and there is no intent, you know, complete rule book, and you're using your own initiative and experience, and you're working with uh, a multinational team. So the thing about overseas missions with the Irish Defence Forces uh, is they can offer incredible opportunities to test yourself and your reserves physically, mentally, and to expose you to a range of experiences that you just would not get in any other walk of life. And the bottom line then is you come away from that that kind of way of life after maybe, I don't know, eight, 10 years and decide to move on, you've got a foundation that makes you incredibly resilient and incredibly adaptable to a whole wide range of career paths.
0: Because essentially, if you've survived a life like that, you probably feel like, or I'm, I'm, I'm presuming here, that you, you feel like you might be able to survive anything.
1: Yes, I, I would agree. And I suppose I should add too, though, not everybody that goes into a military in general and, and, and the Irish Defence Forces in particular wants to pursue that kind of life. And that's fine too, because they, they will want maybe a more regular lifestyle and there's plenty of opportunity to pursue that, you know, the admin clerical line or the technical trade line or whatever else. Uh, and, you know, it depends on how far you want to go up the ladder rank-wise or how far you want to specialise. But for those who do want to kind of get into it for a period. There is that. But I would also add too, not to make to sound too elegiac and rosy, um, there, is a, there is a downside to it if you're not careful. You have to, as you're doing, working in that way, be aware. You know, again, self-awareness as well as situational awareness is so important. So situational awareness is you know, your surroundings, being completely able to read what's happening and knowing that you're in a physical as well as a cultural landscape. And that, uh, that's a huge important part of staying safe. Uh, self-awareness, What are your strengths and weaknesses? You know, have you thought through if you're doing this kind of work and you want to have a family uh, or if you do have uh, a significant other that you have thought this through with them? Because it's incredibly damaging to developing anything like that. And a lot of people don't think that through. So they end up destroying something inadvertently or the destruction of that has a huge impact on them and can, if not destroy them, significantly damage them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can take a bit of time to recover. And that, that's the, shall we say, psychological side. Then there's the the physical side. You know, you're working up, uh, on those kinds of missions that are high tempo in the Middle East, in Africa, uh, in the stands. I mean, we, we had a small uh, presence in Afghanistan as part of the uh, UN mandated International Security Assistance Force. Now, a lot of people don't realize that, um, which is why you made me smile when you were talking about neutrality earlier. Like Irish troops have been on a wide variety of missions. but. There is a physical cost. I mean, you, you, there are, you know, aside, quite aside from the physical cost of getting your leg blown off with an IED or something like that. But uh, there's all kinds of tropical diseases and things like that. And if you're in remote areas, living and working there, even if you're taking the various, you know, uh, prophylaxis drugs that you're supposed to take, you end up getting malaria. You end up getting a variety of, of, of other things that can and will stay with you, that can affect you. And in other words, you have to, you have to be aware of that. Now, a of the, I, I don't want to sound doom and gloom. It's possible to, uh, to come out the other end, but you have to take complete responsibility for yourself, your decisions, uh, be aware of what you're getting into uh, and manage yourself. And if you do, you will come out the other end incredibly resilient and incredibly adaptive, and you will feel that you've led an interesting life and you have still the potential to do all kinds of other things.
0: So Declan, then tell me, how did you come to or how did it come about that you ended up telling the story behind the siege of Jaddevil?
1: Well, with regards to Jaddevil, I served with the son of uh, one of the guys who was there. Um, and I remember being on duty one night and you know, was nearly 30 years ago, I came up in conversation. So that was the seed of it, because I'd never heard of it. And I was pretty well read on military history and particularly Irish military history and on Ireland's contributions to the UN. So I was a little bit fascinated by the aspect that they'd been written out of history and then at at a later stage when I was in more more sensitive areas of defence headquarters with access to broader information I was able to read up a little bit and discuss it a little bit more with um, particularly with senior officers who were serving during that period and that gave me a more rounded uh, perspective and uh, you know the the thing about stories in the uh, in the military uh, more than any institution, there, there can be a lot of old wives tales, there mm-hmm. can be a lot of things that have a basis of truth but they get distorted with the retelling. So in that period I was able to kind of put some you know, some <clears throat> skeletal form in this and a little bit of meat on the bones. And when I left the army uh, and I was you know, developing a you know, career in, the, in journalism and the media, well, particularly when I you know, began to develop it uh, from the, the military analysis perspective. A publisher asked me, had I any ideas for a book or two? And my initial idea was to do with the... It was very simple, because they didn't want anything too complicated and something that would catch the eye of a general civilian reader. And we had kind of initially settled on the background of the military level of the It's Ireland's version of the Victoria Cross. So, you know, tales of daring do. And in the conversation, I said, mind you, I said the, uh, the story of Jadaville is quite interesting as well from that perspective, and I expanded on it. And the publisher said, ah, oh, that's it, do that. So I did. And um, my intention was to do a job of work that would <coughs> uh, set the record straight on it. Not necessarily to kind of go off in a uh, kind of a jihad or a, 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 a sort of a pilgrimage to, uh, to right wrongs as such, but to set the record straight and to use it as a platform to try and educate both the general public and the body politic in ireland about the fact that irish troops have been going on overseas operations with the un and other organizations for uh, quite a number of years and that it's not all sweetness and light and that we should the more aware we are of it the more we might make informed decisions about future matters to do with defense it's always the kind of the broad outlet, and uh, as is so often the case with these kinds of projects uh, it grew legs, like, you know, I wrote the book and then uh, there, was, there were a number of people that were agitating away, kind of beneath the surface because they were never getting traction. And I think maybe the fact that I had knew the army inside out from both being at, at the bottom and at, in headquarters, I uh, knew the media world as well. I kind of knew what you know, could make a good story, but not at the expense of the authenticity of the story. I uh, knew what was needed maybe to attract the right attention. Mm-hmm. And it did at that time, it led to the Minister for Defence standing up in the doll and exonerating him. It led to a monument in costume barracks. It led to a, a certain amount of things that satisfied the veterans and their families of that period. But what was interesting, the key thing I learned during that period and kind of fast forwarding the whole thing, even, you know, Jerry Ryan, who was a great believer in the Defence forces and a great interest in military affairs and who I had a good relationship with then, I used to regularly go on his show to explain military security and terrorist related events. He gave me an hour of discussion on his show about this and it was probably the widest listened to radio programme at the time. And yet, Jadaville never fully made it into the public consciousness. And I was reasonably well known at that stage you know, on media for military affairs. And uh, you know, it still didn't, a few years after the, uh, the book, uh, there were a few other things that happened. But uh, there were documentaries. It took the making of a film. to yeah. Suddenly, you had people uh, talking about, and, and people in the media it sort of bemused me. They were talking about this secret that had been brushed under the carpet. Like, yo, know, it wasn't a secret when I'd written the book and when I went to the Jerry Ryan show. But uh, it just it taught me a lesson as if, if you want people to listen, sometimes you have to go for the, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but the lowest common denominator, tell the story in the most exciting way. And that's what the film did. And it is a film. Now, it has yes. been, uh, there was a review there lately on the issue of awarding Distinguished Service Medals to members of the of a company who fought at Jadaville. And the review ruled against it. It, it. it made one fundamental error. I mean, it's technically correct in a lot of what it says. But when I appeared before that review, I said it would be a mistake to analyse Jadaville purely from a military perspective. It must be looked at from a cultural context, from a political context, and from the context of the Ireland that exists today as opposed to the Ireland of the 1960s. Uh, they didn't do that. And the reason people get it, jump up and down about it now and love the film uh, is because it represents a hidden history and it's a successful story and it's one we can be proud of. And the international community, the, the, you know, have seen it through Netflix and people bizarrely in the most strange of circumstances uh, contact me about it and particularly military people. Now there is a certain school of thought that says the film has distorted the reality and they don't get it. Like, the film was never meant to represent the reality. Its primary job is to entertain. Well, yeah, it's a Netflix film. It's a Netflix film. And it brings, but I mean, if it it has brought a lot of people to read, not just my book, but others on Mm -hmm. it, to read the history, Mm -hmm. to read the broader history. It has broadened the horizons. And therefore, as far as I'm concerned, that's a win. There's a lot of stuff was written about the 1916 rising, a lot of representations of it that were never entirely accurate, but they brought people to read more deeply about it. And, you know, if somebody watches the film and they see a representation that is the essence of what happened and if they want the accurate version then they can read my book and then if they want to get into more detailed knowledge about Ireland and the Congo there are other books to read and that's the way I see it and I think from that point of view between the book and the film they both have done a a useful job in writing a wrong and in broadening horizons primarily of Ireland and her people about their defence forces and what they do.
0: I can't let you go without asking about the Irish involvement very recently, the Rangers that were dispatched to assist when the US decided to pull out of Afghanistan. And I know at the time you were on a number of different current affairs shows and, and giving your own perspective on it. The fact that we have members of our military, of our defence forces, army members, Rangers that are so highly trained, and... Um, is not something that I think we talk enough about. We don't even, un, I don't think, even think there's a general understanding that these people even exist. And I, I kind of, it left me wondering about the level of respect that we as a nation have for our military and and the work that goes in that is, and I know people don't go into it because you want the accolades, but there does seem to be a huge disconnect between citizens of Ireland and the real-world work that our Defence Forces do?
1: Well, I suppose to be fair, I think it's the same in most other Western you know, countries, uh, whether in Europe or elsewhere, there, you know, there is a kind of a disconnect between the general civil, civilian community and the military. Some people say, oh, no, in America, they, they totally respect them and whatever else. But you look at an awful lot of veterans that have been in some very difficult circumstances in Iraq or Afghanistan and how they're left to live afterwards. Uh, you know, there, there's for and against, there's, there's, there's pro and uh, there's, there's positive and negative experiences. The same in Britain, the same in France. So <clears throat> in Ireland, I think the biggest problem is that it's not so much about just the general public. It's about the body politic and the, their expectations of the military to be able to be of a certain capacity, to do a certain job, and then their lack of interest in facilitating uh, the creation of that capacity with the necessary resources funding and uh, appropriate support having said that i think that there is a general feeling amongst most irish people of pride in the fact that our defense forces has punched above its way to use a, an oft-used phrase but they have done and with regards to the ranger wing special forces in particular i think the uh, i'm not i'm not a big fan of it but for 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 personal reasons the um Ultimate Hell Week and Ray Goggins and his, uh, his colleagues have hugely helped to create an awareness of the Ranger Wing uh, and what they do and the type of training required. When I say I'm not a big fan of it, it's, it's, it's because... Um, you know, you know, if you've been through that kind of training and you're looking at it and it gets very stylized and it's only a week that you are doing and it's made out to be uh, the devil and all. I've, I've been a little bit harsh. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's very hard to look at it, uh, I think, for anybody who has been through that system, whether they were in the ranger wing or not. An awful lot of that training now uh, that you're seeing in the uh, Ultimate Hellwick. A lot of regular soldiers go through that, uh, maybe not in their basic training, but in various other courses. The Ranger Wing training, the full selection course, it's a month long. That's just for selection. It is intense. And it's not, it doesn't matter how fit you are, you will suffer. And it's not about, you won't pass it if you're as fit as a fiddle. Uh, you will only pass it if your mind is in the right space. There are people who have not been as fit as some who have come through it. Uh, and some people who have been brilliant athletes who have not come through it. Uh, And the other thing, the other point I would make about that, and it's kind of in relation to what you were saying about the deployment to Kabul. It was great that it happened in many respects, not least because of the number of Irish citizens that got brought home. That just wouldn't have happened without an Irish presence on the ground. With the best will in the world, our American and British and other European friends were there and doing a good job. But you need, you know, if you want to look after Ireland's interests, then you need somebody representing Ireland. Uh, You can't expect your friends and neighbours to put Ireland's interests at the same height on the list as that of their own country's interests. And sending out a team of diplomats on their own would not have done the job. I've worked closely with the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, on uh, both training and on overseas operations. And in fairness, some senior people among it would admit to me uh, the fact that they are not—they are not experts on the ground in operational situations. They're experts in diplomacy and in communication and in a variety of other areas. So there was a very good synergy created, uh, the right synergy for that mission to put uh, diplomats and special forces team together. I think I could foresee in the future there will be greater need for that. I mean, there is a, a mechanism that exists. Uh, I was uh, probably one of the first to experience it, the emergency civil assistance team concept, which is about that synergy between state agencies that are needed to do something to protect or to rescue Irish citizens in trouble overseas. And my experience of that was in the Sharon Cummins kidnapping and you had elements of Angarda Shia the Defence Forces, uh, the UN mission on the ground and the Department of Foreign Affairs who ran the show. it's a, it's, it was interesting to see, as a small nation, when we recognise the assets we have and we bring them together, we can, we can achieve great things. And I think in the Kabul situation, I think it was great for the nation to realise that we too have that capacity, uh, that we can uh, look after our, our citizens' interests and welfare and safety if, uh, if given the chance.
0: Well, Jack uh, Power, the question I ask at the end of this interview, is somebody who started off life wanting to be in the army and has ended up with such an interesting and varied career, but in many respects you've ended up as a storyteller, regardless of whether it's the teaching or the story of the military and of what, how things run or as a journalist. I'm wondering what storytelling means to you.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, what it means to me is harnessing uh, tradition and uh, harnessing achievements of, of people and of a nation, a, a society, and uh, the opportunity to pass those things on. So the lessons that have been learned, the things that have been done, and the, 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 the glue that is needed to hold a nation together, like there's the formal stuff. But when you put it like that, storytelling is essential. It allows a nation, a society, let's say, Nation may be too grandiose a term to talk to itself and to not out what are the important things and then to take those things and move forward and hand them down to uh, future generations so that they learn about what went, what went before them because I was always passionate about history uh, you know as a secondary school student, and I still am and i 'm fascinated in terms of how history can be used to the good and indeed to the ill because the people who tell the stories can oftentimes become quite um, essential to uh, how how the future of that story gets retold. Uh, so if you've got somebody who seeks to do good and to try and create a, a beneficial society going forward, you will have a good outcome. But if you are people who want to manipulate or who have malevolent intent... And what I'm thinking about there, I'm just thinking about all of the talk we have in recent times in this country about reunification uh, or unification depending on which way you want to put it. And And yet when we talk about it and people get very passionate we, we're not maybe oftentimes creating the right interpreting history in a way that may be conducive to that. Um, I, you know we, we, we get passionate about 1916, the 1916 rising, which you know, is, is, is fair enough. It's, uh, it's a totemic thing in Irish society. But the Somme, uh, the Battle of the Somme in World War I, uh, is something that both traditions on this island can commemorate because we had so many men that were killed in it from nationalist and unionist traditions so telling those stories on a personalized way is a way that can draw our two peoples together and whether that leads to reunification or not i don't know but i know that you won't have any kind of unification if we don't do more to find common ground in personalized stories and we're not doing that we're not doing that enough as uh, you know more recent events have shown i would say we're more polarized than ever
0: Unfortunately, I have to agree with you on that. Um, but look, I could talk to you all evening. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for speaking to us here on Ireland Creates. It's been a pleasure.
1: I have to say it's been a pleasure as well, Aisling. Um We covered so much ground there. I wasn't expecting it. And uh, you've been a very uh, easy day to talk to. And thank you for your listeners.
0: Thanks for your time. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Declan Power, as I said, a fantastic storyteller and very generous with his time. That's all we have for this week's episode of Ireland Creates. We'll be back next week with another episode of Ireland Creates on all good podcast platforms.